So, hey everybody, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. As always, thanks to Nia Simone. And here comes the sun. Today we have at least two stories and possibly three based on time. We may go to the phones, 818-985-5735. The first and most important story by far is the role that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and a third kin they played at the uh, indigenous forum, Native American forum, that, you know, there's all these debates about the Democratic Party and all these different forums, and this is one uh, that the Native Americans called, and there were other candidates there, but the main major so-called candidates were Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. I'll let it speak for itself, but I think both represented major breakthroughs for the candidates, positive, and major breakthroughs for the conversation. But here's the punchline of the Strategy Center, the punchline of Eric and Channing in a racist, imperialist, white settler state. There's only one issue in every election, white racism. White racism either wins or loses. That's what the vote is always about. Historically, candidates have thought you can avoid the conversation about white racism, Democrats have thought, by discussing, quote, economics. So we will repeat, for the white, crazy racists, they don't care about Social Security. They don't care about Medicare for all. They just want to hate. And that hate feeds them. It's real. And there's been a historic problem in the Democratic Party of talking about race, talking about racial oppression, God knows, talking about the racist roots and realities of this country from the time it was born in 1492. It was actually born, by the way, 12,000 years ago when the indigenous people came. It was the beginning of the destruction was 1492. So in that context, let's listen to the Native American Forum. Eleven presidential candidates, including Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, participated in the first-ever Native American presidential forum that included major presidential candidates. The forum in Sioux City, Iowa, was held just weeks after Congresswoman Deb Haaland, one of the first two Native American women in Congress, publicly endorsed Senator Warren for president, calling her a, quote, great partner for Indian country. Warren came under fire last year after she released the results of a DNA test as evidence of her family's longtime claim to have Native American ancestry. On Monday, Senator Warren apologized for her actions. Now, before I go any further in this, I want to say this. Like anyone who's being honest with themselves, I know that I have made mistakes. I am sorry for harm I have caused. I have listened and I have learned a lot. And I am grateful for the many conversations that we've had together. It is a great honor to be able to partner with Indian country. And that's what I've tried to do as a senator. And that's what I promise I will do as president of the United States of America. I want to leave that for a minute before we get to the next segment, because I was very worried, for good reason, that I thought that Elizabeth Warren's 
let's get right to it, false representation over Native American, non-existent Native American culture genetics for personal gain was enough to just destroy her candidacy. It's obvious she's being endorsed by Native American Indian uh, elected officials and leaders, and I think you heard in there a tremendous, genuine sincerity of voice and content. So all we can do in life is make sometimes terrible mistakes, and then you make major apologies. The fact that that apology has been accepted and that she's getting the endorsement of many Native American indigenous forces is a positive development. Very few people in the United States even know how to make an apology since the whole country is, is a, should be in permanent apology for the next 5,000 years. Now let's move to the next part of it. Thank you, Ricky. The federal government's history with our tribal nations has been one of broken promises. We need to make change. We need to honor our trust and treaty obligations to the Native tribes. And we're not going to do that with one little statute over here and a couple of changes in regulations over there. It's going to take big structural change. That's how I see this. Think of it this way. Um, full funding for housing, for health care, for education, for infrastructure. Those are not optional. We need to change the rules and make it happen. During the Native American Presidential Forum... So let's take that for a minute. The reason I'm breaking it each time is because I don't... I want to, Each thing is quite significant. If you've ever been on the reservations or seen them, I mean, they're both a con combination of concentration camps, and there are people in them fighting very hard, indigenous people, to make them uh, habitable, humane, and beautiful. But... Uh, the treaty rights of the United States have not just violated treaties in the past. In the present, Trump is trying to violate every single treaty with the indigenous people about mining rights, about their right to not mine, around funding, around schools. I need to learn much more, and I'll make a commitment on voices. I'm, I want to go into a, a deep dive about learning more about the present state of Native American indigenous demands. But when she's saying full funding for every single element of what's on in Indian country, that's a major commitment. And then I like her concept. She keeps saying it. We need structural solutions, not a law here and not there. What she's proposing, and she's done some work, for those of you who know it better, she has a major position paper on indigenous rights that I want to read. But this is all very important, very important, and Everything is now being rooted in history, if you'll hear. So the fact that the United States has taught such false history, and now there's an effort to try to learn real, the horrible history of the United States, is very important. And this, remember, this is a woman running for president of U.S. imperialism. So good job, Elizabeth. Let's keep going. During the Native American Presidential Forum, 99-year-old U.S. Army Nurse Corps veteran Marcella LeBeau of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe posed a question to Senator Bernie Sanders. I do have a question, and this relates to uh, the massacre at Wounded Knee. And to me, 
my personal opinion, there's a pervasive sadness that exists on our reservation because of unresolved grief. When these 20 medals of honor were given to the 7th Cavalry soldiers when they, at the massacre at Wounded Knee, when they killed approximately 250 women and children in, in the leader who was ill with pneumonia. And so all of these things have a bearing on what the feelings and helplessness of people on our reservation, the elders, the children, everyone. And so my question is, will you support the removal of the STAIN Act? That is my question. The answer is absolutely. Medals of Honor are given rarely, and they're given to people who do very, very important things. And I want to thank you for your work. I know you received recognition, I believe, from the French government and elsewhere for the work you have done in World War II and saving lives. That's the type of a person who receives Medals of Honor. They're very rare, and they're given to people who show great, great bravery. Massacring women and children is not an act of great bravery. It is an act of depravity, depravity. You know, this afternoon and in the few minutes that I have here, we're not going to resolve all of the issues of the last 500 years. But I think it is important, not differently, by the way, than how we deal with the abomination of slavery that the time is long overdue for us to be having that discussion of what happened when the first settlers came here and the terrible and horrible things that were done to the Native American people, not only at Wounded Knee, but in so many other places. I think that is a discussion that the American people actually want to have. And at the end of that discussion must be the necessity of us doing everything that we can to repair the damage, the psychological damage, the humiliations, and also address the real needs of the Native American people today, who in many cases uh, are living in poverty. So there's a lot of work to be done. But to acknowledge, and it will not be easy, a lot of pain there, but to acknowledge what the settlers have did when they came here and what has happened over the last many, many years is something that this country is going to have to address. And as president, I look forward to addressing it with you. Thank you. Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, this is really profound, and I would argue a major change in his understanding of his candidacy. And let me go slow. The first thing is you should go to watch the video. It's, it's on the Amy Goodman Democracy Now! site, right? And the first thing you see is Bernie Sanders sort of hanging his head as the woman is talking. Now, she's not talking about the massacre of Wounded Knee of 1972 when the American Indian Movement went back to that reservation to uh, commemorate the first massacre. And they were massacred again by the police and uh, Leonard Peltier is still in prison today for a false killing 
of a federal officer there when, in fact, it was the federal officers who were killing people. You watch him hold his head down. You watch a slowness in his conversation. You watch a thoughtfulness, a change in tone. Uh, He constantly says the word settler. You know, you have to understand Vermont, where he's from, is one of the worst settler states, really. It's a virtually all-white settler state with two senators. But it's a white settler state country. Now, he says we have to go back over 500 years of what the United States has done to the indigenous people. And then he brings in the crimes of slavery. I'm sorry, I'm often very critical of Bernie that he's in a situation and he doesn't pivot well. He doesn't, he, you're asking a question and he can't move. In this case, he moved to integrate a conversation about indigenous people and slaves. And he says that the American people want to have this conversation. Well, the American, the black American people do and the indigenous American quote people do and the Latino and some whites do, but this is different. I want you to say hear it again and again. If he goes on the campaign trail, I don't know if he's going to beat Trump with this. I can't promise this or whether Elizabeth is going to beat, beat Trump by doing this. But this is long overdue. It's the 400th anniversary of slavery since 1619. It's, you know, just keep working from 1492 to the present for that genocide. And they overlap and they're integrated. So these were two white candidates at the Native American presidential forum, I think both doing a terrific job. And one more thing that's very important is that I think it was Naomi Klein who wrote an article about about a couple of weeks ago saying to the uh, Sanders and Warren camp, stop fighting each other so intensely, try to scoop each other's votes. It's the same basic voting block. And if you two sabotage each other, first of all, you look ugly, and secondly, you lose. If you watch them now on the, check this out on the debates and check them out, their collegiality towards each other, their view that one, they're running against each other as well as with each other, but they must preserve this block and expand it dramatically because it's still overwhelmingly white. But they're trying to move not just the racial base, but the political base of what the conversation is. So, you know, I give out my grades and I gave Bernie an F for a debate where I thought he got an F. But fair is fair, Bernie. You got an A on this one and so did Elizabeth. And A's are hard to give. It wouldn't just be because you made good statements. It's because you went to Sioux Falls, you went into the heart of Indian country, and you related. And the last thing I wanted to say, because I have been doing a lot of thinking about the subject of genocide, is the wounded knee that this woman was talking about is 1890. Now, why are the indigenous people adamant to keep wanting apologies? Why do black people want apologies for something that happened 400 years and 500 years and 600 years ago because it hurts today? Not simply that it's reflected in more racism today, But unlike white people who don't want to really face their history, for the indigenous people and in in their spiritual worldview, because I've seen this on several films, the massacre of Wounded Knee creates pain in the souls of indigenous people today. They want that apology as the next generation and the next generation will, because this genocide is not a thing of the past. 
It's something deep inside the soul of the people. And for Bernie Sanders to understand it was a lot about pain and humiliation and to not constantly reduce it to an economic calculus, all those things I think are terrific. And I think they're going to shape, or I hope they're going to shape, the democratic debate, which is going to have to confront the history of U.S. racism and imperialism. Last point, I have a thousand last points, is that Donald Trump is running on the white settler state. He's running specifically on saying the white settler state is back. That's what he means by America great again. And he's terrifying a lot of black and Latino indigenous people to say these white crazy people with their guns, those are my voters, and you better be careful. So I think there's a very assertive dynamic in the campaign. I think I ask Kamala Harris, I ask every other candidate, you better now respond to this. Because for once, in my opinion, Bernie and Elizabeth, they've upped the level. And now we're going to hear also, of course, a third Native American speaker who's going to be fantastic. But before I do, Channing, do you want to come in on this one? Um, why don't I come in on the, the next okay, one? That's actually, not, that's I have fine. a lot of thoughts on the next okay, one. Okay, good. Go ahead. With you. Thank you. Senator Bernie Sanders, other candidates at the Frank LaMare Native American Presidential Forum included Mark Charles, a tribal citizen of the Navajo Nation, who's running for president as an independent. Missing and murdered indigenous women is a massive, massive problem in our country, in our communities. Probably most everyone in the room has not just heard about this on the news. You probably have a relative, a friend, a neighbor who is missing or has been murdered, or has been assaulted, and was not properly followed up on. A lot of candidates are going to propose that we need new laws to protect these vulnerable communities. I would say we don't need new laws. We need a new basis for our law. When you have a constitution that never mentions women, you cannot act surprised when women are assaulted, murdered, and go missing, and law enforcement and society doesn't care. We don't need a new law. We need a new basis for our laws. We need to deal with the foundations of the country. Independent presidential candidate Mark Charles of the Navajo Nation. Well, you heard him best. I, I mean, I, I can just repeat it, but, you know, it's the most revolutionary of all of the candidates that, you know, it's not just the law, it's the actual country itself and that the entire country itself is built on genocide. Um, and, you know, I'm, listen, I, I'm listening to a lot of what you're saying, Eric, about, you know, the need to apologize and, you know, the the thing I just keep thinking in my head is that it's, you know, even from the black perspective, it's, you know, it isn't simply about just the apology. It's that we have not had any closure and we cannot move on because it's still an open wound right. today. Right. Um, and I think that's so important. It's important that, you know, Bernie is doing a really good job. This is the first time that he's really addressed, you know, non-white people directly by name and said that it is wrong and what the United States is wrong. Um, and, you know, all of them, 
know they have subtle differences, but they're all alluding to the fact that it's not just a law. It's the entire system that needs to be changed, and they want to do something about it. And just that alone is so important. Well, you know, I'm working on an introduction to a book, and uh, there's a when I first was brought into the Congress of Racial Equality, uh, a guy named Lou Smith, who was the uh, regional director, and he was my first person interviewing me. And he said, you know, and the Civil Rights Act had just been passed. So this is September 1964. The act had been passed about July, August of 64. And he said, you know why we have to do nonviolent direct action against the system in every way? He said, let me ask you a question. Why do they have to pass the 14th Amendment that black people, that there's so-called equal protection under the law? Because they had slavery. Then... The white said, all right, you want equality? We'll give you separate but equal. But wait a minute, that's not what the law said. Well, that's how we interpret it. Then we have Brown versus Board of Education, 1954. Why do they have to pass that? It says that separate but equal is inherently unequal, so we can't have segregated schools. That's good, but we already had the 14th Amendment. Then why do we have to have a 1964 Civil Rights Act? Because they didn't enforce the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education, and they didn't enforce the 14th Amendment, which was passed in 1865. So back to uh, what the candidate was saying is you can't worry about the laws. The fundamental question is the country is rotten. And if you don't change the core of the country, there's no laws you can pass, as you said, Channing, to uh, help indigenous people. Now, this plays well now. But you have to understand that when it goes on the campaign trail, there's a lot of white people who are going to get ballistic on this. And we have, you know, not, they're not going to win through the indigenous vote. They're not going to win even through the black vote. Oh, I know. So oh, the point is, what I'm getting to is this is the first time they're not trying to worry about that. They're worrying about what's right. And, and I think that's the best way to win, by the way. That's my theory. But as you were saying, and as far as the open wound goes, the open wound is because this country is so inherently racist that it's doing the wound today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's both, oh, I have two things. One is funny, actually. There's a film, I think it's called, uh, like, Bucket House or Money Trap or something like that, where, you know, then I don't like Hollywood, but sometimes they make, uh, unconsciously, you know, very anti-imperialist films. So, you know, there's this comedy about this couple that buys a house, and it's a it's a terrible house. Right. And they fix this, and then something else gets broken. They fix this, then something else gets broken. And by the end of the film, the entire house collapses and sinks into the floor, and it feels like that is exactly what we're describing today, is this, like, money trap that... Why do you keep fixing up this piece of, you know what, um, just get rid of it and build the whole house over? Um, I forgot my second point. Um, okay, well, that is right. So tear down the house. Uh, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to deal with uh, something that's actually completely relevant to this, which is the retirement of Andrew Luck, one of the very, very best football players at the age of 29 because of massive injuries, and I'll explain. And Ricky Herrero, let's take a short break, and we'll come back with Andrew Luck. 
KPFK is supported by LA Concert Group, presenting Ara Malikian. Malikian will make his Los Angeles debut on Saturday, September 14th at the Burbank Starlight Bowl Amphitheater. Ara Malikian shows his history and his violin in today's dispute culture to asylum seekers as he builds bridges between people of different nations. Again, that's Saturday, September 14th. More information available at kpfk.org. Okay, so this is back on Voices from the Frontlines. Eric Mann with Channing Martinez. Let me set the stage on this one. Most Many of you don't know much about football, and there's no reason you should. Um, I've decided I wanna, I'm going to stop using the word fan, which is short for fanatic, seriously, as we'll discuss. Oh. So, so let's say I'm a football viewer, a football appreciator. Enthusiast. Enthusiast, that's a good word. I played it, you know, Pop Warner stuff. I was pretty good. And uh, I do love the game. It's a pretty brilliant game. So Andrew Luck is a quarterback. Many of you who are sort of superficial uh, enthusiasts of the game would know, of course, uh, Joe Montana. You know Tom Brady. You know Brett Favre. uh You know, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees. uh, There's a lot of great quarterbacks. One of the almost great quarterbacks of all time was Andrew Luck. He came out of Stanford. He was an all-American football player, six foot four, really brilliant. Uh, He was drafted by the Indianapolis Colts in 2012. He replaced Peyton Manning who was also injured because of his neck and was finally traded to Denver where he won a Super Bowl, actually in spite of himself, but that's a whole other story. And Andrew Luck was the greatest drafted quarterback in the last 10 years. But football is a very, very violent game. And the only chance you have in this game is having what's called a great offensive line which are a group of very, very big 300-pound people who stand in front of you. And then there's a defensive line, which is another group of 300-pound, six-foot-six people who are very fast and very strong, and they run full speed at the quarterback, allegedly. All happens in the trenches, said Ricky. That they allegedly run at the quarterback to... Uh, block his pass or even to so-called sack him, which means to tackle him. But they're really running to hurt him. Let's be very clear. They're running to put a shoulder into his chest and hopefully knock the wind out and, if possible, uh, break the sternum, which in fact happened to Andrew Luck. He had so many injuries. He had uh, a concussion. He had a lacerated kidney. He had a torn labrum in his shoulder that was so bad that he was out for over a year. He came back last year in 2018, and he did great. He did great. So here's 2019, and Indianapolis has a very, very fine team, and he started developing leg problems. And this time, at 29 years old, he said, I've had enough. Uh, We're now going to hear his actual retirement story. And behind it, 
is the story again of a country of no values, a country that just chews out people and pays them a lot of money in return. You're supposed to just allow yourself to be beat up badly. We're going to talk later about all the concussion problems that players are having, early dementia, people that can't even get out of bed. But let's listen to Andrew Luck explain why at 29 he chose not to continue to try to be a football star, but as he said, to find his own life. Envision this or plan this. Uh, but, but I am going to retire. Uh, this is not an easy decision. Uh, honestly, it's the hardest decision of my life. Uh, but it is the right decision for me. Uh, for the last four years or so, I've been in this cycle of injury, pain, rehab, injury, injury pain, rehab. Uh, and it's been unceasing and relenting, unrelenting, both in season both in, and off season. Uh, and I felt stuck in it, and the only way I see out uh, is, is to, to no longer play football. Uh, it's, it's taken my joy of this game away, uh, and uh, this... Sorry. I've been stuck in this process. I haven't been able to live the life I want to live, taking the joy out of this game. And after 2016, where I played in pain and was unable to regularly practice, I made a vow to myself that I would not go down that path again. I find myself in a similar situation. And the only way forward for me is to remove myself from football in this cycle that I've been in, uh, com come to the proverbial fork in the road. Uh, and and I, I made a vow to myself that if I ever did again, I would choose choose me in a sense. It's very difficult. I love this team. I love my teammates, the folks in our building, the, the fans, the game of football. And, and as part of this team, uh, as, a, as a member of this team, and because of how I feel, I know that I am unable to pour my heart and soul into this position. Uh, which would not only sell myself short, but the team in the end as well. Uh, and it's sad, but I also have a lot of clarity in this. Uh, it's been a difficult process. So I actually wrote down this uh, before, you know, I realized we had the clip. I would, last night I was just listening to the clip. Obviously, for a lot of us out there, people in abusive marriages, women in abusive marriages, people in unbearable situations that are much worse than, you know, a $25 million a year quarterback. But still, uh, this is how I envision this. But I'm going to retire. It's the hardest decision of my right life. But it's the right decision for me. For four years, injury, pain, rehab, un it's been unrelenting. I feel stuck in it. The only way I see out is to no longer play football. And I think for a lot of people, the way out is to no longer do the thing that's causing you the pain. Whether it is a bad marriage, whether it is an abusive relationship, a horrible job that you may have to go to. But at some point, it's much more than what Andrew Luck is going to have to do, but it's really important. He said, it's taken my joy out of this game away. I've been stuck in this process. 
I've not been able to live the life I want to live. Think about that for all of us. Are there times in your life when there's no joy and you're not able to live the life that you want to live? After 2016, when I paid in pain and could not practice, I vowed I would not play in pain again. I find myself in a similar situation. The only way forward for me is to remove myself from the pain. And I think if we put on, the, on our walls, I want to remove myself from the pain. I want to extricate myself from an unacceptable situation. I know it's hard because it's not like in the United States of imperialism, oh, there's a great place right across the street. You're black in a slum. Why don't you just go across the street where there's all this wonderful free public housing? You're a black woman or a white woman or Asian woman being beat up. You know, take your kids and go to a shelter. Well, that's pretty, pretty hard. Uh, You're in a job that's unacceptable. There is no other job. So you're leaving the job to be uh, unemployed. He's leaving not just with all the money, but a $25 million advance that the the cults out of decency have said you should keep. You know, it's okay. But nonetheless, I don't want to trivialize his choices. He's Andrew Luck. He's only 29 years old. You don't know what it's like. I don't. To be a football player where since you were 12 years old, that's what you are and that's what you do. He was an all-American, you know, he was a 12-year-old little leaguer, and then he gets into high school, and he's the football star. That gets him into Stanford. At Stanford, you're a football star. He was not injured at Stanford. He had a great team and a great offensive line. Then you go into the Indianapolis Colts, and then it starts, and the, the injuries just keep coming and keep coming, and the pain. And finally, you go from being injured to what's called rehabilitation, but rehabilitation is hard. It's going back into a gym with trainers, 8 and 12 hours a day, rebuilding the body that was broken so it's good enough to go back into war and get broken again. That's what rehab means. It's not an easy word. So good luck to you, Andrew. And uh, it's interesting. There's a guy named Doug Gottlieb who's a sports loser. He's on FS1. I mean, he's a miserable SOB. Before this thing he said about Andrew Luck, he's, this is the kind of shock jock guys that just get up and they have no life. They're just pathetic human beings like Doug Gottlieb, and they get up and they just insult everybody, and they, their goal is to get everybody upset, but that's because they're losers, and Andrew Luck is a winner. So there's been all these players, uh, uh, T.Y. Hilton has come out and, and totally supported him. The team has come out and totally supported him, but some of the fans in Indianapolis booed him they booed him. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, you want me to go? Finish. finish yeah, it. so I was just listening on the way in to Fred Rogan and Rodney Pete. They have a show on, you know, on the radio. And they're talking about, which we're going to bring up on another show, or we're starting here. Uh, Blake Griffin, who's black, was called a boy. Uh, um Fans are now screaming racial epithets from the from the stands at black players. Eric Dickerson told the story in Indianapolis where he was, I just heard it, where he was a star there and somebody put on a billboard a picture of him eating watermelon 
with chicken on one side, and he said he couldn't really believe it. He was just disgusted. And he's, a, he's one of the greatest stars. Here's my point. There is a point here. Um, there's a, an analogy between the decency of Andrew Luck and the decency of uh, Mark Charles, the Native American presidential candidate, the decency of Elizabeth Warren, the decency of Bernie Sanders today. This is a rotten country. It's wrong to think that's the 1% against the 99%. That's a good hustle that somebody sold you, but it's wrong. The vast majority of people are involved actively in carrying out imperialism. They are police officers and families of police officers. They're soldiers and families of soldiers. They're prison guards. They're racists. They're fans screaming crazy stuff, 100,000 people in stadiums, drunk as hell, yelling every single epithet at a ball player. And when the ball player gets hit and breaks his, his ankle, when Kevin Durant tore his Achilles in Toronto, the allegedly progressive Toronto fans applauded. So we got a sick problem here, and as, as Walt, uh, whoever came up with Pogo, said, we have met the enemy and he is us. So my point is that large numbers of people are involved in the suppression of the indigenous people, and large numbers of people are booing Andrew Luck because he walked away from the madness. So folks, that's what the revolution is going to be like, is a revolution of transformation of consciousness because there's a lot of wonderful people in the United States. There are. And that's what the Civil War is really about, between barbarism and liberation, between racial justice and genocide. And in both the case of Andrew Luck, and but much, much more importantly, of course, in the case of indigenous people, it's just a fight to see if this country has, in, in the middle of declining imperialism, if there's any sustained moral compass that our movement can organize and, in terms of 2020, try to get over to the finish line. Channing Martinez. Um, yeah, that was wonderfully said, by the way. I just can't move on without saying that that was wonderfully said. Um, I was just in the the recording room looking up some quick history of uh, NFL and and Greek history because um, I don't watch football, so I don't know very much. But, you know, I am kind of moved by this story. Um, and in some way, I heard him doing his press conference, and for some reason, I went to Greek bullfighting, Greek sorry, gladiator fighting, and, you know, just that whole... Um, how should I call it, like a uh, setup or the theme of having someone fight to the death right. for other people's entertainment and how that comes out of a really Eurocentric history. And not just Eurocentric history, people around the world did yeah. that a lot, yeah. unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, I wonderfully said what you just said um, about the fight between barbarism and actual liberation is so important. And that's you know, that, that for me encompasses everything I was about to say about the Greek, you know, Greek bullfighting, Greek uh, um, gladiators, and, you know, just the idea of that that is barbaric for, you know, thousands of people to come to see you basically, you know, subject yourself to violence and that being entertainment to some extent. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. And we are in a you know in a cultural revolution right now. There's a there's a cultural revolution and a cultural counter revolution. I think that's really good about the gladiators, because the concept is we're all animals, and the question is, do you want to be a, a coherent moral animal or do you want to be a a barbaric beast? And uh, imperialism certainly brings out the worst in people. So. Uh, Let's talk to some listeners and see if, the, but listen, we want you to start with the Native Americans, if that's okay, and then we can move to the discussion of Andrew Luck. Uh, 818-985-5735. The first thing, of course, again, I want to thank Mark Charles, and, and I would like to apologize that I had not memorized his name so that I kept, at one point I referred to the Native American candidate. I will not do that again. So it's Mark Charles is the Native American presidential candidate. I want to learn more about him, and we'll have more of his quotes on the show in future shows. All right, Christopher, what do you got? You're talking to Eric and Channing on voices from the front lines as Ricky gets to the phone. Yeah, good afternoon. I just wanted to chime in on another Sanders first. Uh, coming off of the El Paso incident, and when he was addressing white supremacism and fascism, he said that we will go to war against white supremacy and fascism. And uh, I don't know if you've heard anybody say that anytime recently, but this guy just did. Well, I just want to say again, because thank you. I mean, one of the things that I've taken criticism for is that I don't say that Bernie did it because of me. That's a joke. But there were heavy criticisms of his campaign, especially in the 2016 campaign, of his denseness about race, big fights with Black Lives Matter where he didn't even know what to do when they showed up, uh, trying to, what do you call it, uh, superimpose issues of race and racism in, in a very economic, economic, economic campaign. I think he's come a long way. I think there are people in his campaign pulling his coat and saying, look, Bernie, this is, you got to move on this. And also, I think Trump is going to make better or worse people out of us. Trump is calling the question. Uh, so thank you for the call. I want to just add one thing about Trump, which is relevant. I've been following Trump a lot lately, even stuff on how he manipulates the markets. You know, I'm calling it, uh, what am I saying? Uh, Basically, don't think he's a fool. He's a fascist, and he's a very brilliant politician. He's very good at what he's doing. He's got his own government off balance. He's a terrific debater. He, everybody laughs at him. Well, no, no, they don't. Around the world, nobody's laughing at him. And the reason I'm saying that is we can't discuss Bernie and the indigenous people. We can't discuss Mark Charles and Elizabeth in a, in a, in a vacuum. Uh, there is a ferocious white settler state, and there's a third article that uh, I'm going to actually mention, if that's okay. Ah, my friend Morris is coming. But I want you to listen to this. Johnson & Johnson just settled in Oklahoma with the government of Oklahoma. They didn't settle, I'm sorry. A court in Oklahoma ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay $752 million, less than a billion, for its role in the opioid crisis. And Johnson & Johnson, who should have been thrilled because there was $18 billion in fines on the table, 
is appealing it and claims they had no role in the opioid crisis. But there's a more fundamental problem. The whole country is high. I mean, nobody wants to live here. The poor don't want to live here. The rich don't want to live here. The whites don't want to live here. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an imperialism in decline. So the role of drugs, which is always a problem, the role of alcohol is at a level of explosiveness. So this opioid crisis, which is interesting because it is significantly white, at least in perception, is getting such a much more sympathetic view than the crack cocaine or the other heroin or other things that black people allegedly use. But here is where my point of this is. Trump has assessed that this is a white settler state in which half the vote, people voting for him are on methamphetamine and the other half are on opioids. Mm. And he doesn't care as long as, because that's how he keeps feeding them because there's an anger, a rage inside drug users, you know. And he knows that. He's speaking to a drug, not just a racist, but a drug racist constituency. So when you listen to Bernie talk about it, we're going to go to war with white supremacy, that's good because it's got to be a war. That's my point. And the more we focus on that war, the war about race and gender, even more than allegedly class and economics, is the only chance I think we have to win this race war because it is a race war. And that's what this 2020 election is going to be about. It's going to be a race war. And can we get some white people which they did during the Obama campaign, by the way, to join the side of right against the racists. So that's a good quote, and thank you for telling us about Bernie. Uh, Marlene from Valley Village, and then we'll get to Mars. Hi, Marlene. You're with Eric Mann and Channing on Voices from the Frontlines. Hi, Eric. I really appreciate the show today. Um, it's very, very good. I think everything everyone's touched on. I have a kid Thank who's you. over 25 years, and uh, but there's many people who've died with a phone number in their pocket from an overdose. Right. And uh, Trump took out, as you know, billions out of the mental health budget for 1919. I mean, for 2019. And appreciate what you're saying about the Constitution and women and the Indian, because I've Indian women, because I've followed that for a long time. Uh, the white men coming on these reservations and killing and disappearing these women and uh, just the lack of protection. Uh, so anyway, and Andrew Luck, I, I always appreciate your sports analogies. <laughs> so I just, a good show today. Anyway. You know, that mean, Marlene, that means a lot. You know, when Channing and I, we do a lot of work on the show. We do. Yes. And... When we get a call like you, Marlene, who says I'm actually a human being out there, that's why we like going to the phones. Because, yeah, I work on sports, I work on music, me and Channing do a lot of work on film. And I don't have to apologize. You know, Channing is a somewhat introverted person, but not in our relationship, thank goodness. So he and I work very closely on everything. Everything that, by the time we get to the air, we have figured out this show together. He's got all the clips. So thanks for what you just said, and, and that, yeah. and I wanted to say one more thing that's important that I didn't pick up on enough, which is the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women, which I should have, you know, I always should have done something more. This is a big campaign. It's a whole big issue. I mean, you've got four women a day now being murdered by their spouses, 
and uh, our ex-boyfriends. And uh, Castro, Julian Castro, is talking about taking guns away from uh, men who've, you know, been abusive to their exes. Well, you know, it's like, and which is wonderful, but it's like these are the things that we're fighting for because, we, you know, so many people in this country, it's not just the, this country that's rotten, it's the world because so many people are just thrown away. So those of us who are on the battlefield, we're going to, we got to try to. So good job, guys. Good job. Yay. That was great. Made my day. Made our day. Okay. Thanks, Marlene. Call every week. <laughs> uh, one more thing I want to say that a good friend of mine today, uh, her nephew was killed because her boyfriend came in and killed the new boyfriend and the, the, the you know, killed the, the old girlfriend and let me try to say slowly what I'm trying to say. When the when the Cuban Revolution came, uh, Fidel and Che talked a lot about the new man and the new human. That capitalism is producing some pretty distorted people, and people are have lost their hope because during the '60s there was a lot more hope, and there was a lot of places where people felt they could get involved. Millions, tens of millions of people involved in food co-ops, marches, not just showing up and marching, but building the signs, showing up a week early, like people go to church sometime. We had, I mean, tens of millions of people were involved. There was an alcohol problem then, there was a drug problem there, but nothing like today, because it's a product of a declining imperialism that's lost. It has no moral content to it. And socialism and anti-imperialism are the only moral perspective that can recruit people away from drugs, away from alcohol. But until then, we certainly need these programs, AA, drug programs, mental health programs. People are trying to get clean. And the very government that's causing this problem, driving the people crazy, then pulls away the money for mental health. So let's put that on the list, Marlene. Thank you. And, and I'm going to also, in terms of my pledges to the listeners, Channing and I are going to do more work on the missing and murdered indigenous women to learn more about that campaign, and we're going to have somebody on in the next couple of shows. Is that a deal? Yes. Yes. Morris. Oh, look at that. It's blowing up now. All right, Morris, my buddy Morris. Hey, hey, but you know what, Eric? Back in the 60s also, if a person didn't have a job, right, the government was uh, would give you a job. They wouldn't let you just die out on the streets like they do today. Remember President Roosevelt? If you can't get a job in the private sector, y'all come on over here so you can feed yourself. But you were talking about something, Eric, about how we've got to change our culture because we're a violent culture, and we really can. <clears throat> There's a an article in the New Yorker. It's called the 1619 Project. Huh. I know you're familiar with it. We've got to get that into our schools instead of teaching Manifest Destiny the way we've taught it. And uh, people, keep your heads up because there's a blue wave coming. Believe it, a big blue wave in 2020. If you're running for office and you got a D in front of your name, you're going to win. And get back to the 1619 Project, Eric. The black people in this country are the most patriotic people you'll ever want to meet. Because when they heard that narrative, the slaves, keep in mind, we come from slaves. When we heard that narrative of freedom and happiness, we went buck wild. And we've been trying to make it pass ever since Thomas Jefferson spoke about it. Okay? So keep your head up. Uh, get the 1619 Project in our schools. Challenge uh, white nationalism, which, of course, is expressed through Manifest Destiny. And we're going to turn this thing around in our lifetime. Thank you, Eric, for this platform. 
Thank you, Morris. And to be very clear, the Strategy Center and the show is certainly making the 2020 election. Uh, we do think this is going to be the pivotal uh, historical challenge of certainly the, the in our immediate lifetime. And we have about a year and uh, three months we got to figure out about the California primary. We got to figure out a broad united front of Democrats and progressives and independents to defeat uh, Trump. And like Morris said, black people have always had the sort of greatest moral vision and ironically, the greatest sense of optimism. It's a very optimistic people, which is why Channing and I like to work in South Central Los Angeles. That's why I've always been in the black community since I was 16, because there was something, and the Puerto Rican community, something beautiful. Uh, I've never seen a, a people so oppressed and so optimistic at the same time and so upbeat. I mean, you have to be. <laughs> Otherwise, if you're depressed, you just die, because... Everything, almost a lot of things about being black are depressing. So you have to find optimism because optimism is life. Put that in there. Optimism is life. That's really great, Channing. We'll, we'll try to, obviously, Channing and I both think each other is pretty smart. Okay, that was great, though, seriously. Cost, uh, Carl in Costa Mesa. Uh, Carl, listen, we got only about four minutes, and I want to get three people in. So go ahead. Thanks, oh, thanks for being oh, on Voices. Bad. I'll make it fast, but i got to say it's always an honor to appear after Morris. He's brilliant. I could listen to his take. <laughs> yes, he, we're, yes. we're going to do a Morris show. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, first, if I might correct Channing just briefly, I've traveled to Greece several times. And uh, I've, in all the museums I've traveled to in Greece, I've never seen one Greek gladiator exhibit. I think you're thinking of ancient Rome. And as far as the bulls go, oh, right. that's the Minoan civilization on Crete, and they worship the bulls. I don't think they killed them or fought with them savagely. Like, um, hey, here in California, remember in the early days there were bull and bear fights? Um, I, I will take my um, your response uh, off air. I'm going to hang up here in a second, but I would suggest I'm, I really like the topic today about the treatment of the Native Americans uh, in this country. Uh, I read a great book not long ago called The Disenfranchised by Dale Van Every. And I'll leave you there. I just have to leave you there. Thank you so much for calling. And we're going to go now to Barbara in Los Angeles and then to Bill in Lake Elsinore, more than us commenting. I want to make sure our two listeners get on. Go ahead. Yeah, I thought that young man who was talking about a changing course after football, I found that very meaningful. And also your follow-up comment about people in abusive relationships that find it hard to leave. I can't say too much. Unfortunately, I'm in one right now, but I just found that young man and the follow-up you had to say very, um, well, i just glad you said it. So I'm going to get off the air. But listen, thank you. Listen, I can almost hear it in your voice. Check out a place called Peace Over Violence. It's absolutely wonderful. Peace Over Violence. We know them well. We're working closely with them. They have terrific programs for women suffering abuse. They have some protection. Just please at least consider it and call them. They have a 24-hour hotline. We work closely with them now. I'm so happy we finally have something we can say besides I'm sorry. Tr even if you're terrified, Please make the call, or especially if you're terrified. Please Thank make the you. call, okay, sweetheart? Please make the call. 
Okay, Bill in Lake Elsinore. How are you doing? Great. I, I also wanted to shout out to Morris. I love all his response. But keep up the great work, Eric. And like I tell, I've never had a problem with anybody of color, of any race whatsoever, except whiteies, my relatives, and my, my constituents. And I tell them, I've only had a problem with people that look like me. Thank you, Eric. It's <laughs> <laughs> hard, hard, to, hard to finish that one. That's a great way to end the show. <laughs> yeah, let me say this, that we almost oh, all of us have had problems. Uh, you know, I have problems with people that look like me. I'm a Jew. But let me say that also on the positive, that a lot of people went, white people went to Mississippi to risk their lives. You know, Andy Goodman and Mickey Schwerner, Viola Liuzzo, Reverend Reeb. In the black community, interestingly, there's not a lot of anti-white sentiment. It's anti-white power structure sentiment. Even in the 60s, when they said white folks, they didn't mean all white folks. Malcolm spoke to audiences of white people. Why did he do so? He thought he could win them over to the black revolution. So you're absolutely right. We live in a white settler state. I would say, sadly, the majority of the white people in the white settler state benefit from it and act crazy and bad. But thank you for your call. So listen, folks, that's why we go to the phones. We love our listeners. Channing, you get the last word. You're on KPFK, Eric Mann, Voices. Talk. Uh, thanks for tuning in to Voices from the Frontlines. Please visit our website for previous shows and check us out on SoundCloud. And give us a good review. Clear and